Lord on this Lord's Day morning. We will continue, obviously, in our teaching series in the book of Job called Sovereign Suffering. Last Sunday, if you were with us, we looked at Bildad's second speech where he literally describes hell in vivid detail in chapter 18. We learned that hell is the place of total darkness, inescapable punishment, insatiable terror, total disillusion, the loss of all things, terrible separation, and that it's for the wicked. Those are the things, the points and truths that we drew out of chapter 18. And Bildad was in the most ultimate way just suggesting, suggesting that that's, that's exactly where Job was headed. I mean, he talked about hell in chapter 18 because he believes that's where Job is going. Why? Because he thinks that Job has hidden sin. He thinks that Job is a wicked person rather than a blameless and righteous person. So all of chapter 18 that is about hell is, in a sense, directed at Job, who is the hell-bound guy, according to Bildad. And... What's really cool about chapter 19, our next section, is that Bildad has made his case, right? And now Job is in a way agreeing with Bildad in that he feels like he's already in hell. Like in chapter 18, you're talking about how I'm going to hell. Chapter 19, Job is saying, I'm already there, <laughs> literally. And, and he unpacks and describes his hellish experience thus far. So please take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 19. I've got to cover quite a few points. We're going to look at Job's hellish comrades, <laughs> right? Those three friends like little demons. We're going to look at Job's hellish comrades, his hellish confinement, his hellish casualties. And then there's a little switcheroo. We'll look at his humble cry his heavenly consolation, and his hardcore caution at the very end of the text. Let's go ahead and pray before we get to work. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would pierce our spirits today and convict us of sin and sanctify us. Um, Lord, help us to understand what's going on here and to understand Job's response to Bildad. And help us to, to see and to discover any parallels that are there to our lives. And then ultimately in the end to see Christ. And so we just pray that you guide us now. Uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive your truth. We pray that you do a mighty work here in our midst, the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we can pick up where we left off last Sunday and begin with our first point, number one, Job's Hellish comrades. We see this in verses 1 through 4. Here's where Job responds to Bildad. Verse 1, it says, Then Job answered and said, right here, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. Job begins, as he has done before, by basically rebuking his friends. This is a, a strong rebuke in these four verses. It is their 
words or their arguments that have caused a lot of this grief for Job. You would think that maybe the loss of his wealth, children, and health would be enough, right? You would think that just losing everything in your life would be enough for you to be so grief-stricken and, and just destroyed. But the deepest pain that he actually feels here comes from his friend's accusations that his sufferings somehow prove that God is against him. So, you know, the, the friends, have they've come to console him, but they end up being those guys who rub salt in the wounds. And his biggest discouragement at this point isn't necessarily his losses, but it's his friend's words. That's his deepest pain. And, and I, think I, can, I think I can relate to Job here. If you've gone through a lot of travail and trouble and difficulty, if you have friends that are not supportive and that are trying to somehow make you out to be the culprit when you know you aren't, is that going to be helpful? That's going to add grief and pain to your situation, and that's exactly what's happened here. His deepest pain is his friend's accusations against him. It is this that drives an arrow through his heart. He says, they have cast reproach on me. They have wronged me. And he says, they've done this and they've accused me of hiding sin and all these things have come upon me because of me and and God is against me. They've said these things and they've accused me, he says, at least 10 times, he says here, which is not a literal number. If you go back and count the speeches they've made against him, I don't think it adds up to 10. He's using a little hyperbole here. What he means is that over and over and over, you keep repeating the same accusations. Ten times, a hundred times, what's it matter? That's what you keep doing is what he's saying. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar the old gopher. They could have shown compassion to Job. They could have alleviated some of his suffering. That's why they had originally come. But they chose to prove Job wrong, which created a hellish atmosphere and increased his suffering exponentially. They were like demons tormenting a subject. They were like a broken record in that one song, you can't get out of your mind every morning when you wake up. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? You wake up with a song on your mind, and two in the afternoon, it's still there, and now you're like, I think I need to go throw up. You just It's something that haunts you, and it stays there, and that's these friends. Nothing changes with them. They always make the same accusations and brutalize them him with their words. He says that they literally break him in pieces with their words. They're making his situation worse by just like jackhammering him with these accusations. Really is a a tormenting kind of situation with these demonic type friends. Satan was actually using them. They did not know this or realize this, but Satan was actually using them to try to break Job spiritually and get him to curse God because that was Satan's goal all along, remember? Chapter 1, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 5, he thinks that that Job's losses and all the travail he goes through will result in Job cursing God, abandoning his faith and relationship with God. God says it's not going to happen. But Satan is now actually working through these friends to try to break Job as if his losses weren't enough. Satan actually used Job's wife in the same way, chapter 2, verse 9. Remember when she said, hey, why don't you just curse God and die? Satan is at work here. 
And I would say that these men, these three men who came to talk to Job, these friends, they were not in any way true friends. Not at all. They were like the devil's pawns. They were hellish comrades. In verse 4, Job lashes out with brutal sarcasm. It was as if he had said, If I had done what you've suggested, what business of yours is it? My errors are my errors. They remain with me. Like, why are you making such a big deal about my sin? It's my sin. It's between me and the Lord. And, and you somehow have become the, the, the captain of, of the, the, the cruise ship called my sin. Why is my sin such a big deal to you? Why is that now your life goal? This is what he's saying. I like what Dr. Lawson said here, Steve Lawson. I really like this guy. He says, Job was not confessing that he had sinned, but was making a hypothetical statement that even if he had, his error remained his own concern. That is, it was his business, not the business of his friends. This was a, a personal, private matter between him and God, and it had nothing to do with them. And I'll tell you, some Christians, some Christians are just determined to make the sins of others their business. Just like these fellows. The Bible calls one who does this a meddler, a busybody, 1 Peter 4.15. A busybody meddles in the affairs of others. Sometimes this meddling is done under the guise of helping, but usually the help is unwelcome and uninvited, isn't it? Have you ever had to say to someone, I know you're trying to help me, but I never asked for your help? You're talking to a meddler. You're talking to a busybody right then. Now, busybodies are often people who are dissatisfied with the level of drama in their own lives and gain satisfaction by becoming involved in the problems of other people. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the less drama I want. And the last thing I want is other people's drama. But some people out there don't have enough drama in their lives, so they go out and want to purchase your drama. <laughs> it's a strange phenomenon. And I'll tell you what, gossip is usually a staple of every busybody, right? They talk and they talk and they talk about other people and other people's sins, and yet it is usually camouflaged. All this gossip, all this talk is usually camouflaged as a prayer request or it's given under the pretense of asking for advice. Hey, I need to talk to you, Bill, for a minute. I've got this situation with these two people. Here's what they're doing. How would you deal with that? What I just did was not actually seek advice. I was a busybody, and I gossiped about two people. Or the old prayer request trick, right? I've got this situation with these two people, and I, I need you to pray with me. Here's what they're doing, and you unpack the Inquirer article about their marriage. It's ridiculous. This is what happens. We, 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 we camouflage this stuff under prayer request and advice. And I'll tell you what, here's what we do. I just want to equip you with some basic practical things before we move into the next section. We need to ask ourselves these questions before we get involved in the affairs of others. Okay? And each one of these questions is tied to Scripture. 
Firstly, is this situation any of my business? 1 Timothy 5.13. Right? Literally. That's a great question to ask. I know this is happening over here in a remote part of the church, like there is what remote part in this church. I guess it's behind that white thing over there. But does this situation, does it include me? And is it any of my business to begin with? And, and I would think that nine times out of ten, it has nothing to do with you. But you will find a way for it to have something to do with you. Is this any of my business? Or secondly, has God given me this assignment? Ephesians 6, 19. Is this something that God wants me to address? Has that become clear? Three, am I qualified to involve myself with this? Romans 14, 10. Am I qualified to go over and inject myself into this scenario? Do I have the type of abilities and things to actually be helpful here? Every one of us in this room thinks we are qualified. Nine times out of ten, we are not. It's true. How about this one? Is my true motivation to bring help, or do I only want to feel like I'm needed? 1 Corinthians 13.1. That's a great question. Sometimes we have these empty feelings of inadequacy, and we don't feel valued the way that we should. And so what do we do like a syringe? We go and inject ourselves into some kind of a situation to make ourselves feel wanted, to make ourselves feel valued, when in fact we have nothing to do with that situation. Insecurity can drive. Insecurity usually does drive the busybody. Another one, how much of my discussion about the situation could be classified as gossip? Proverbs 11, verse 13. Uh, if, if this situation doesn't have anything to do with you and you, you don't meet the criteria that I've already named, then all of your discussion about it probably is some kind of gossip because it's not your business. Uh, <laughs> this is a great one. What was the result the last time I intruded in a situation that was not my problem? <laughs> Proverbs 26, 11. Well, that whole situation blew to pieces, but I feel pretty good about myself. <laughs> so, so, like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar the Gopher, you came into a situation and made it worse. And we have the potential to go into a situation that doesn't have anything to do with us and make it worse. And so we need to analyze ourselves down the road and say, what happened last time I injected myself into, that, into a scenario like this that didn't have nothing to do with me? How about, has my opinion been sought by those involved? Proverbs 27, 2. Did anyone even ask you to come into the situation? Usually no. You know, there's a reason why people at this church and at other churches don't just come out with their stuff to one another here because sometimes they don't trust us enough with that information. We get upset when information is withheld from us because we value ourselves and value these relationships. We think we're entitled to information. And yet, so often, we don't realize that we're not really trustworthy with that situation or with that information that, because we have a track record of not responding properly. You know, trust is something really that you have to earn, right? If people go to you, then they obviously trust you. If they don't, then maybe they don't trust you, or maybe they're just too ashamed. 
But this is a great question to ask. I'm like, at 51 years old, I'm like, if they ain't asking me to get involved, I ain't getting involved. Right? 21, I want to know what's going on. What's happening here? Let me get in there and help. And then I blow it to pieces. It happens. This is a great one. Am I motivated by love for this person or by a sense of my own importance? 1 Corinthians 16, 14. I guarantee you with those three friends of Job, it was about their own importance. They showed no love to this guy. Another one, am I basing my help on Scripture or on my own opinion? Proverbs 16, 25. Another one here, and this, this is a big one here. Lastly, do I respond with anger when my advice is not accepted or found to be flawed? Proverbs 17.10. These are all legitimate questions to ask ourselves before we go and get ourselves involved in something here. Now, here's the deal. As Christians, we are supposed to keep each other accountable and confess our sins to one another. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, that's the whole section on church discipline. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. James 5, 16, where it literally says, confess your sins to one another. There the context is illness. Somebody could make an argument that, that the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, were in the right because Job needs to confess his sins to them. We're supposed to have this kind of interaction with one another. problem is Job doesn't have any sin to confess. But you could make that argument in a sense. I still say they're way wrong. And here's the deal. We're supposed to keep each other accountable as Christians. We're supposed to confess to one another when we can. But let me tell you, none of us are going to be inclined to do this with dads and busybodies in our midst. You ain't going to get anything out of me if I can't trust you with what I'm going to tell you. And I would expect the same from you. What we need to do is we need to become true friends to one another. True friends. Like Christ to his disciples. Trustworthy companions. We need to cultivate a safe atmosphere here at RHC. Only then will we begin to open up and share our struggles with one another. Only when we sense and feel that this is a safe environment where your delicate information, your struggles, are held in confidence and shown mercy and given grace. Or a swift boot in the rear, because sometimes that's what we need. But only then. You're going to want to be open and honest and transparent around a Bildad? Who then in return writes an entire passage about hell to you? That's not somebody you're going to open up to. That's not going to be somebody you share your struggles with. And quite frankly, Job didn't have a sin struggle to share. But do we not need to cultivate a loving, caring, accepting, grace-based environment? We don't need a shame environment. We don't need a guilt environment. We don't need a recompense environment, even though some of our sins need to be disciplined because that's the way the Lord loves us at times. Follow those steps. Let's not be like those friends of Job. They were hellish companions, not true friends. Secondly, 
Job's hellish confinement, verses 5 through 8. He says this next, If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out, violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. Job points out how his friends see themselves as morally superior to him. They magnify themselves against him, he says. Well, you guys are just up there in your ivory tower. You never sin. You never have any struggles. And you never, ever complain when you're suffering. You've just magnified yourselves above me. You're so much better. And they see his disgrace as proof of his guilt, which is their argument against him. He argues that if it was not his sin that had caused his suffering, but it was actually God who was mistreating him. This is Job's entire argument. I I know that I'm suffering. You think it's because I've been sinning and hiding my sin, but I'm telling you it's because God is mistreating me. God is misjudging me. This is, that is the premise of Job's entire argument in the book. That's what he's been arguing since the beginning. And this was not a, a new charge of injustice voiced by Job, but one that had already surfaced many times. Chapter 8, verse 3, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, chapter 16, 11 through 13. These are all places where Job said, God is mistreating me. There's an injustice here. And then this same voicing of injustice, it surfaces again by Elihu in chapter 34, verse 12. This is a theme in the book of Job, that God is mistreating Job. And the word that Job uses here wrong in verse 6, it carries the idea of perversion or being perverted. And I don't mean in the sexual way. The charge that Job is making is that God has perverted justice against him. He's bent justice against him. He's tweaked it. What is more, Job claimed God had drawn his net around him as if he had been caught like an animal by a hunter or a stalker. Verse 7, Job is literally like a man being mugged in the streets, right? He cries out, violence! It's like like foggy midnight in, in London, And he's walking down a cobblestone street and a mugger comes out and starts pounding him. And what does he say? Violence, violence, violence. He's calling for the constables who don't carry guns, just billy clubs. Violence, bring me one with a gun. Violence, bring me one with a (laughs) gun. That's what I would say. Don't come with a stick. He's crying out violence. That's the picture that we get here, somebody being mugged in the street. But he says no one answers him. No one comes to help him. Doesn't matter how much he cries. Look at the exclamation point. Doesn't matter how his his audio level, how loud he gets. He yells violence. Violence is being committed against me. I'm being mugged. I'm being mugged. But no help. No one answers. And you know what? He feels that God is the mugger. God is the mugger. 
In verse 8, he claims that God has walled him in and darkened his paths. Verses 6 through 8, Job basically describes his own personal hell. He has been wronged. He has been netted. He has been abandoned. Nobody's listening to him. God isn't listening to him. He's been walled in. He's been imprisoned. He's been subjected to darkness. That's his hellish confinement, and it's all God's fault. That's what he's saying. God has done this to me. He has placed me in hellish confinement. Number three, Job's hellish casualties. This is by far the longest section, verses 9 through 20. In it, Job describes his losses, the hellish casualties he suffered during his his ordeal. We see 11 examples in the text. I'm going to run through all 11 of them. May not spend a whole lot of time on each one because they're they're really just they're just the way that he's doing it in the poetry. It's just they're just bullet points. He's just describing his hellish casualties. Here's my losses. Is it a comprehensive list? I, not really, but he covers some things here. A, firstly, the loss of Job's glory. Verse nine. He says he has stripped. He's talking about God doing this to him. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. God has taken my glory. This is a hellish casualty of mine. Now, when he's talking about glory here, he's talking about his glory as an image bearer. He's talking about his glory as a, as a wise elder in his community, as a wealthy landowner. He's not a king or anything like that. He's not royalty. He's just talking about how the, the basic coolness about who he is and, and the glory of his wealth and the glory of his prominence and all of that and his, his prestige in the community and the respect that people had for him, all that he calls glory, all of that has been taken away from me. It's been stripped. He was like a king and now he's a pauper. He was like a, a prince and now he's a serf. I lost my glory, he says. B, the loss of his hope, verse 10, he breaks down, breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope has he pulled up like a tree. I mean, this, this is like a this is like besieging a city here, the language he's using. It's being broken down on every side. The walls around Jericho, so to speak. The walls are being broken down. He's, he's broken me down on every side. He's taken away all of my security and everything good in my life. He's torn it all down. It's all gone. And he uses an agricultural term here, right? The hope that I had. And sadly, a lot of his hope was based on everything that he had. God has just kind of pulled it up like a tree. Pulled it up like, like a weed, root first. The hope that I had has been pulled up and cast out, cast into the fire. C, the loss of Job's peace and safety. We see this in verses 11 and 12. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. Again, what's he using here? He's using battle language. Imagine in your mind a city with walls and an enemy that's outside of that and is breaking down those walls to get inside that city to kill the inhabitants and subject them to this other king. 
The peace that he had has been torn down because God is, he thinks that God is not at peace with him. God is treating him in his mind like an adversary. Well, if you're an adversary of God, you're not going to have peace. You're not going to have safety with God tearing down your life. That's what he's saying. The peace and safety that I enjoyed, it's being ripped apart because God's wrath is against me. Now, he's wrong, but that's what he thinks is happening. D, the loss of Job's brothers and acquaintances. Verse 13, he has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. I don't think brothers here. Brothers here, because he talks about siblings in a moment. Brothers here is not a reference to his flesh and blood. Brothers here is a reference to those who believe like him. Brothers in the church. Brothers and sisters in the church. Brother believers. Uh, basically, this is the point where if he had a church, church didn't exist then, but if he had a church then, it abandoned him. His brothers and sisters in the Lord turned away from him. First of all, they couldn't even have him in the service because he had worms all over him. That's pretty difficult to preach when you're looking at worm boy in the corner. Oh, whoa. Pretty hard to sit next to him. He needs communion too. Who's going to serve it to him? Not I. He was a repulsive visually repulsive. And of course, everyone thought that it was sin that had caused this. And and instead of showing him mercy and grace, they pull back from him. He loses his brothers in in the faith. He loses people who, who knew him, just acquaintances. Hey, that's Job. He's a pretty cool guy. Those guys who were saying that and acting like that weren't saying that or acting like that anymore. They all forgot him. They all, they're estranged from him. They're separated from him. E, the loss of Job's relatives and close friends. He's kind of amping up here. Verse 14, my relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. So, so we go from brothers in the, in the faith, so to speak, and then some acquaintances, right? Those are some, eh, I don't know, the acquaintances aren't really relationship where the brothers would be. Now he's talking about his own relatives, cousins, what have you. They've all failed him, meaning they're just not in his life anymore at this point. And and the close friends that he had, the relationships that he had with with non-family members in the community, those are dissolved and gone. He doesn't have any friends. He has three of them, but they're more like demons. F, the loss of Job's guests and maidservants, verse 15, the guests in my house, and I take it because he was such a wealthy landowner, the wealthiest, most powerful guy in all the East, he probably had some pretty cool parties, right? Probably had some pretty cool parties, a lot of people coming and going from his estate. He had guests over there, and he's saying, the guests that stay at my house and my maidservants, those who serve around the house and cook the meals and do all the things, they all count me as a stranger. They have become, or I have become a foreigner in their eyes, is what he says. So now we're talking about we're talking about outside relationships. Now we're talking about inside relationships in his house. Those relationships are gone. Even his maidservants, who are basically paid to serve him, don't want to serve him, right? And he probably don't dare fire him because there's nobody out there lining up to go to work at his place. He's not an equal opportunity employer at this point. He's lost everything. Lost his guests. Lost his maidservants. Uh, G the loss of his manservant. Verse 16, I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. (laughs) So he's got an actual paid manservant that helps him out, and he calls out to him, hey, Fred. He rings the bell, ding-a-ling-a-ling. Fred's like in there smoking a cigarette in the kitchen. 
I ain't going to that fool. Doesn't even pay attention to him. I'd be like, you're on payroll. Yeah, but have you seen you? Nobody goes near a sinner like you. His manservant, gone. They don't even come to him. They don't even answer him. He doesn't even, he gives him no answer when he calls. He pleads. He even has to plead with his servant for mercy. Have mercy on me. His servant's like his friends. H, the loss the loss of Job's wife and siblings. Now we're getting to the closer circle of intimate relationship, right? Verse 17, and he says it like this, my breath is strange to my wife. Now he's not talking about morning breath because that's strange to everyone in proximity. They're like, dang, go get some crest, bro. My breath is strange to my wife and I am a stench to the children of my own mother, he says. Closest relationships we're talking now. His breath being strange means that she's not close enough to him to even smell his breath. Why? Because she has separated from him. She has still married to him, still in a covenant marriage with him, but she does not have anything to do with him right now. His appearance, everything terrible that's fallen on him, she thinks just like the friends, well, he's in sin, don't go too close to him. He's the epicenter of destruction. Even his own wife is treating him like this. And his literal brothers and sisters. I, the loss of Job's respect among the youth, verse 18, even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. What's he talking about here? These aren't his own kids. These are the street kids. These are the kids that hang out in us. These are the kids that would be down by the the city gates where he used to sit with the elders and make rulings that benefited his community. There would be children out there playing and maybe playing kick the falafel instead of kick the can. I don't know what they played, but they would be out playing. And even children had a lot of respect and admiration for Job because he was an awesome guy. He was a great leader and, and elder in his community. And even the little kids are like, look, it's the elephant man. They don't want nothing to do with him. Even the little kids. You know you're in trouble when even little kids who are far less judgmental and don't have the understanding that adults have when little kids won't hang out with you, right? Sometimes I wonder at this church, the little kids are the only ones that will give me attention, <laughs> especially those ones sitting over there with the people's name that sounds like Ellie, <laughs> Kelly. Those kids right there are on me like a cheap suit when I come in, and I love it. I love it. But Job had that. He had that. And then those kids... They didn't go to him anymore. They just talked about him. Look at him. He's a wicked sinner. He's under the judgment of God. That's what these kids were saying. They talked against him. How sad, how tragic. And kids aren't usually like that. They can be mean to one another. Jay, the loss of Job's intimate friends, verse 19, all my intimate friends abhor me. And those whom I love have turned against me. So he's moving right through the list. He had family, which is intimate and close, wife, siblings. Now he's talking about how he had some really, really close friends, you know, right? People that he really did life with, really tight friends, trustworthy friends. And, and they literally, he says, those whom I love, they have turned against him. And you know who I think he's talking about here? He's talking about the three clowns that are standing in front of him. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. 
Man, we used to be so tight. Now look at how this has turned out. Lastly, K, the loss of his healthy physique. Verse 20, I mean, he used to look like me, you know, just brimming with health. I'm, I'm joking. Brimming with a gut. He used to have a healthy physique. He used to be physically healthy. Right now, look what he says. Verse 20, my bones stick to my skin. He's emaciated. He's lost all this weight. And he says, my bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. What he's talking about here is death. This guy looks like someone who's died and is going through that 24 hours of rigor mortis. He's emaciated. He's lost all his weight, his skin. The slickness and health of his skin is gone. He's got the sores and wounds and worms. He is messed up. And he feels that he's just barely, at this point, escaping death. He feels like it's right there. I could die at any moment. These are his, according to Job, his hellish casualties, his hellish losses. And, you know, he's in agreement with what Bildad has said because Bildad said health is a place of total separation and total disillusion. It's, it's where you've lost every relationship, every possession, every bit of health. It, 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 hell is the place of torment where all of these things are removed. Job is saying, I'm in hell, Bildad. I'm already there. I'm just above ground. That's what he's saying. And then in the remaining part of this chapter, Job goes in a completely different direction. Number four, Job's humble cry, verses 21 and 22. He cries this out, have mercy on me. He's talking to his friends. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? He's pleading with his friends here. He, he's humbly crying out, have mercy, have mercy. He's saying, can't you see that the hand of God has touched me and caused my devastation? And when we think of the hand of God in the Old Testament, we're thinking judgment. God uses his hand to crush his enemies and smite his foes. He sees God as doing that to him. Hammer strike after hammer strike on Job's life. Can't you see that God has laid his hands on me? That he's destroyed me? Can't you see that? Why do you pursue me? Why do you think it's okay to make things worse for me? Isn't the destruction of my own flesh? Look at me. Isn't my own physique, the, the terrible physique that I have? I look cancer-ridden. I'm destroyed. Isn't that enough to convince you that I'm under attack and I need your help? This is what he's crying out in 21 and 22. One look at me ought to elicit your mercy, not judgment. Notice the phrase, the hand of God has touched me. We need to ask, is this true? Has the hand of God literally touched him? Is he right? Is he accurate here? Well, look back in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, where Satan says to the Lord, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. Satan is telling God to stretch out his hand against Job. Did God obey Satan? Did he stretch out his hand against Job? No. In verse 12, it says, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. I'm not going to lay my hand on Job. You lay your hands on Job. 
Again, in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Satan asks the exact same question, right? To the Lord, stretch out your hand against Job. But what does the Lord do? He says, behold, he is in your hand. Not me, you. The hands that destroyed Job's wealth, children, and health that were attempting to destroy him through these friends were the hands of Satan, not the hands of God. Yes, it was the hand of Satan acting with the permission of the Lord and within the strict constraints given by the Lord, but it was Satan's hands that actually did these terrible things. And this is an important insight. We've covered this a little bit in the past. We need to know. Satan is fond of disguise, right? What does it say he does in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen? He disguises himself as an angel of light. In the book of Job, Satan masquerades as the Lord and persuades Job that it is the Lord who has turned against him and destroyed his life. In other words, Satan is the one destroying Job's life, but he's now got Job believing that it's God who did it. Why? Because he disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan disguises himself as God. In fact, he is the God of the air, the prince of the power of the air. He is, in a sense, the God, little g God of this world, in a sense. And he certainly mimics the true God in certain ways. And now he's got Job believing, God is destroying me, God is destroying me, when in fact Satan is doing it. Satan's got to be sitting back and going, this is wonderful, I've destroyed his life and he's blaming God. We need to remember that Job cannot see whose hand is striking him. He does not know where the blows are coming from. He and his friends assumed they were coming from God, but chapters 1 and 2 tell us they were coming from Satan. Sadly, Job and his friends had no room in their worldview, no room in their theology for the devil and his demons. They don't even have a theology for the devil, really. Their world is a, their view and their world is a simple slot machine world with one slot machine maker who has set the rules. Put a coin in of goodness and out pops a canister of blessing. Put in a coin of badness and out clunks a parcel of poison. In their theology, God is like a clockmaker who sets the machine running and then just leaves it to run. Just says, there it goes. I've, just, I've started. Now I step away and go vacation. The fact that there are real forces of evil in this world, forces with real personality and real influence, it has no place in their thinking. None. In this theological system... Either God or man gets the blame when evil things happen. Satan goes scot-free. He and his minions get zero blame. This is perfectly illustrated through Job and his friends. Who did Job blame for all the evil things that happened to him? He blamed God. Who did Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar blame? They blamed Job. And you know what? People make this same mistake today. They do the exact same thing today. They put the blame for their troubles squarely on God or on others without ever mentioning Satan or acknowledging their own poor decisions. 
Job kept screaming injustice, injustice. God is perverting justice. But blaming God for the evil in his life was truly unjust in my opinion. There's the real injustice. Blaming God for all the evil. Ascribing evil to God is irreverent and dangerous. And the reverse can, can be dangerous as well. People in, in certain church circles today are in the habit of blaming Satan for everything bad. Everything bad that happens, they immediately blame Satan. They say, it's the work of the devil, or the devil made him do it. Right? Well, if the devil is always to blame, there would be no need for biblical correction or church discipline because the devil's just doing all the bad stuff. Us Christians don't do bad things. It's always the devil. And the sinful things that we do, what? They will go unchecked, sin will multiply, and churches, our churches, where sin multiplies, sin goes unchecked, in those churches where that happens, those churches eventually die and eventually disappear, just like the churches in Revelation chapters 1 and 2. Well, it's all Satan. Never mind what Fred did. Well, Fred was acting as an agent of Satan. Now, there's no reason for Matthew 18 if Satan's always the culprit or if God's always the culprit. The fact is that we sin, and there are consequences for that according to Scripture. And the discipline that God brings into our lives for sin is an expression of His love, just as good, righteous parents discipline their children when they sin. It has to happen. But if Satan's always getting the blame, you'll never see that. Or if God's always getting the blame, what do people do today? People don't even acknowledge God. Then when some catastrophe happens, how could God let this happen? All of a sudden, they're no longer an atheist. God's always getting the blame for evil. And people don't take responsibility for their own evil. They blame God, they blame Satan, they blame others. This is happening. It happens all the time. And this is what leads to the destruction of churches. It's what happened in Revelation 2 and 3. Five, Job's heavenly consolation, verses 23 through 27. He says this next, Oh, that my words were written. Hey, what about the book of Job? <laughs> right? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. What about the book of Job? <laughs> right? He doesn't know about it yet, right? Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know, listen to what he says. This is remarkable. He is, he is I, I don't know what Job's deal is, but man, he just cries and cries and cries, and he says things like this, and I'm like, this is me. He says, for I know that my, after crying all that stuff, here's all my losses. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives. You're acting like you don't have a Redeemer. I do, I swear. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. Isn't that amazing? That is incredible. Abandoned by all human helpers, Job desperately desires to be vindicated and proven right by God. He has been fighting to prove his innocence, but it's a, a losing battle, right? His friends don't believe him. And he's pretty sure he's going to die. And he knows that when he dies, his friends will not be satisfied with his death. 
In other words, they will, after he dies, they will slander him. They will malign his reputation forever. His friends will have the power to write out his eulogy or whatever. They might even be able, if they had tombstones, to put the inscription on the tombstone. They can say whatever they want. Would you want these guys writing these things about you after you died with the way that they treated you and with the, what they thought about you? No, and this is, a, this is a, a real fear of Job's. Man, if I just die and I'm not vindicated before that, then my legacy is in the hands of these three buffoons standing in front of me. They might write something like this on his gravestone. Here lies Job, a sinner with secret sins that he refused to confess. He has paid the penalty for his sins at last, and the justice of God has been vindicated by his death. May he not rest in peace. This is what they would write at this point. This is what they've been saying to him. I mean, you, you can at least lie a little bit at a funeral. Well, uh, Biff was a great guy when you know he was a turd. A funeral's where you lie. It is. How many times have people lied at a funeral? They had the worst person in their life ever. That person has died, and they say all these positive things about them. I've never had to lie at a funeral because I have been surrounded by some of the greatest people I've ever known. But he's terrified at the prospect of some terrible inscription, him being remembered for, for who they think he is. He's horrified by the thought of being remembered this way. You know, he's, he's very concerned about being vindicated, but ultimately what he's concerned with is his legacy, and that is something that every Christian ought to be concerned about. What will we be remembered for? He was a hard man, and he was a Christian. How was he a hard man? He was a tightwad. He was a Christian. How could he be a tightwad? He wasn't very forgiven. He held grievances and judgments against people. How could he not be a... He's... What? Job was very concerned about his legacy. He wants the, the truth about his life to be, what, written down, inscribed in a book, and even engraved with an iron pen in the rock so that future generations can know the real Job, not the one that his friends think he is. You know, the blameless, upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. You know, that guy from the land of us, chapter 1, verse 1. There is your memorial, Job, and it's wonderful. And he believes, none of this has happened for him yet, he believes that his Redeemer can do this for him. He believes it. It hadn't happened yet, but he believes it can happen. He's worried that it won't happen but he, in time before he dies, but... He knows that his Redeemer can do it. He knows that his Redeemer can redeem his good name and reputation. He knows it. He describes three wonderful truths here. First, he has a living Redeemer. The Redeemer was someone tied to you by covenant, usually a relative whose calling was to stand for you when you were wronged. If you were murdered, that Redeemer made sure that your murderer was punished. If your share in the promised land was under threat, that Redeemer safeguarded it 
If your widow was childless, the Redeemer would give her a child to carry on your name. In every way, your Redeemer stood for you when you could not stand for yourself. He is your vindicator and champion. That's what the Redeemer means. That's what it means in the Old Testament. You know what book I'm thinking of, don't you? A little book called Ruth, where this is laid out, where Boaz is the kinsman redeemer, but ultimately what Boaz is is a reflection of God who is the ultimate redeemer. This is one of the most beautiful illustrations of this principle that we're talking about here that Job is pointing to. It's found in the book of Ruth where Boaz acts as Naomi and Ruth's kinsman redeemer, caring for them in their widowhood and becoming for Ruth the husband she needs. Job is confident he has a redeemer who lives, which should be rendered lives forever. This everlasting, eternal redeemer can be none other than whom? God himself, who stands as the redeemer of his people, right? Psalm 19, verse 14, Psalm 78, verse 35, Proverbs 23, verse 11, Isaiah 41, verse 14, and of course, Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 34, all speak to God, our Redeemer, the one who stands there for us. He is a living Redeemer, Job says. Second, Job declares that his Redeemer will, what, at the last stand upon the earth. The Hebrew word for earth can be translated dust as in dust on a gravesite, The word stand carries the idea of bearing witness in court. Job is saying that in the future, his Redeemer will stand over his grave and attest to his genuineness and right relationship with God. That's what he's saying. Third, Job declares that in the end, he will see his Redeemer with his own eyes. Although there is a, a bit of uncertainty in translation here, it seems that Job expects this to happen after, he says, after his skin has been thus destroyed, which means what? After his death. And then he says, after he has given new flesh. What? How is this possible? How would Job be given new flesh and then see God with his own eyes after being dead and buried for a long time? We're talking skeletal remains here. How is this even possible? Well, he must have been referring to resurrection. There's no other explanation. He was pointing to resurrection. In the resurrection, the dead and buried are raised and given new physical bodies. The righteous dead are raised and given bodies fashioned for worship and service unto the Lord Jesus in his kingdom on earth. The wicked dead are raised and given bodies fashioned for judgment and the lake of fire. The resurrection unto life is the ultimate vindication by God. It proves that the one who was raised was right with God all along, whereas the resurrection unto judgment proves the opposite. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Abandoned by all others, in the midst of his terrible loneliness and suffering, Job believes he has a Redeemer who lives, who will one day stand upon his grave, who will raise him from death, give him a glorified body, and meet him face to face. What is this? This is ultimate vindication. He believes 
This will happen. This is his heavenly consolation. Even if it doesn't, he's saying, even if it doesn't work out in this life, I know that it will in death. And this is something that the Redeemer will do for me. And what does he say at the end of these wonderful statements? It makes his heart faint within him. What did Job want more than anything else? To see the God he loves face to face with his own eyes. That's what he wanted more than anything. And heart is literally, uh, it literally means bowels or kidneys, which is the seat of the emotions. We sometimes speak of having butterflies in our stomachs, right? That's the seat of our emotions. When we have those butterflies, something creates those butterflies in there. In sixth grade, it was the girl across the classroom. You saw her and went, right? You're like, man, I should have ate, right? Guess what? With Job, it was more like elephants stomping around in his gut, not butterflies. That's how badly he wanted to see his God face to face. We should have the same longing. Lastly, six, Job's hardcore caution, verses 28 and 29. If you say how we will pursue him and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. The final word of this magnificent speech is not... Job's awestruck confidence in his resurrection and vindication. It is his warning to his friends, his hardcore caution. And it's literally what he's doing here is cautioning them. The friends had vowed to pursue Job because they believed the root of the matter is found in him. In other words, he is the culprit. He is the wicked man who hides his sin. We have to stay on him, guys. That's our mission. That's our goal. They were vowing to pursue him. And yet, this judgment against Job put them in peril because those who judge others will be judged by the same standards and in the same measure. Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. This is exactly what Jesus said and warned about how we go about making judgments about others. What we put on others will be put on us if it's not true, if it's a false judgment. And Job is warning them in the same regard thousands of years before Jesus ever came. When God finally vindicates Job, right, when the, when the Redeemer does this for Job and Job believes it'll happen, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they will reap what they have sown. The judges, they set, them, set themselves up as judges. The judges will be judged by the divine judge, and according to Job, they will what? Suffer wrath? and the punishment of the sword. Now, Job did not have to wait until the resurrection, which has not happened yet. He did not have to wait until the resurrection to be vindicated. He thought maybe that's how it'll play out. That's not how it played out. God finally spoke at the end of the book. Chapter 42, verse 7, he vindicates Job and rebukes the friends. Did God destroy them like Job said he might? Did he whack their heads off with the sword or whatever? No. God told them to make burnt offerings to cover their sins and to have Job prayed for them. And this is the thing that blows my mind. Whatever Job prayed for them, God would do. Think about that. 
Aren't you glad Job is a godly, blameless, righteous man and a merciful man? Because after being put through the ringer by these three, three friends, I would have yelled in my prayer, kill them. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. That's not what Job prayed for. Job prayed for mercy. Chapter 42, verses 8 and 9. It's amazing. Whatever it is that Job prayed for, God would do that. And I think that God, he, obviously he knew Job perfectly and he knew exactly what Job would pray for and that was for their own salvation. That was for mercy for them. That was for grace for them. Even though they, of all the people in creation at that time, were the least to deserve it, weren't they? Yeah. Closing. We don't usually think of Job in this way, but Job was a prophet, wasn't he? Hmm? He was. He predicted his own vindication, didn't he? It happened a little differently from how he anticipated, but it happened nonetheless. Right? He thought, well, I guess I'll have to wait till the resurrection to get it. No, he got it a couple of years later or six months later, however long it was. But he predicted it, and it happened. Just goes to show how well he knew his God. He didn't know his God the way that he should have because he thought it was God that was tormenting him, but in the same way he knew that God would also redeem the situation. He prophesied about his vindication. It came to pass. He also predicted that his words would be written down in permanent fashion so that future generations could read his story. What are we reading today? In fact, I would, I would say that, that God has done him more of a solid than Job ever wanted. He said, well, having it written down in some kind of a book would be cool, or maybe even better than that if we could inscribe it on stone because that's even more permanent. Well, God put it in his eternal word for you, Job. It's never going anywhere. Men wither like grass, but the word of God stands forever. It's forever memorialized here. He prophesied this. It happened. Pretty amazing. Job's experience, nonetheless, was certainly hellish, wasn't it? He went through some, some of the very things that Bildad describes about hell in the previous chapter, right? Darkness, terror, disillusion, separation. Uh, he experienced all these things, not down in a literal hell, but on a hell on, in a hell on earth. Another thing he experienced here that was hellish was the, being tormented by his friends who were more like demons. Uh, pretty hellish to feel like you've been mugged and abandoned by God. Uh, he felt confined with no way to escape his circumstances and suffering, right? His glory, hope, peace, and safety all stripped. He lost every meaningful person in his life. Even his wife became a stranger to him. But in the midst of all this loss, this hellish suffering and casualties and everything, he still believed he still believed that he had a Redeemer who lives forever, who will one day stand upon his grave, who will raise him from death, who will give him a glorified body and meet him face to face. Ultimate vindication. He believed this in the midst of all this travail. In the depths of his despair, Job still believed. To me, that is absolutely incredible. I'm not sure that I or anyone in this room would stand this test. 
In fact, I know that the only ones who would stand this test in this room are those whom Christ is truly in because He's the victor who takes us all the way from beginning to end. We can't celebrate Job. I mean, he's a wonderful, godly man. I think we should acknowledge him and say, wow, what a man of faith. But what a Savior! Because it's the Savior that caused him to persevere. We need to give credit to God for this. It's amazing to me that he, he expresses how he feels and, and all these hellish circumstances and everything, and then, and then he pauses to talk about the Redeemer. That's what faith is like. We complain, we're miserable, but then we have these bursts of hope. That's what it's really like. <sighs> you know, he believed something else too. He believed he had a redeemer and that he would be vindicated. He also believed that his friends were in great peril. Why? For clinging to a faulty belief system and for falsely judging him. Here's the deal. They rejected innocent suffering, right? They said there's no such thing as innocent suffering. People who suffer are suffering because they've committed sin. Nobody in the history of the world has ever suffered for righteousness. This is their belief. It's a phony belief. If you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. There's no in-between for these men. They rejected innocent suffering, which is what Job has been claiming since day one. I'm suffering. I haven't sinned. I don't know why. I'm innocent. They rejected innocent suffering, and they were in peril because of this. Why? Because that is tatamount to rejecting Christ because He is the highest example of innocent suffering. Rejection of Jesus Christ who suffered innocently in our place, it brings death and hell. And that's what these men were facing. If we don't have a category for, for righteous or innocent suffering, then we don't have a category for Christ. We don't have gospel. And that's where they're at, and that's why this is so dangerous. And making their situation worse, they pronounce judgment against a righteous man. Job, you're hiding sin. You're wicked. You're going to hell. This is their message of hope to him. And yet, to escape the divine punishment they rightly deserved for basically rejecting the gospel and for judging a righteous man based on false assumptions, the friends were commanded to make burnt offerings to temporarily atone for their sins, which does what? This also points to Christ, the Lamb of God, and final atonement for sin. John chapter 1, verse 29, Hebrews 10, 14. We can see the gospel foreshadowed in Job everywhere. And in a way, God is telling them, you need the gospel. You falsely judged him. You reject innocent suffering. You're rejecting my son who's coming. Make some offerings now because that is the precursor to him. Now, here's the deal. Now, last thought. If we find ourselves, and we do, we do, we find ourselves in the midst of hellish suffering. Job's legacy, Job's words here can be helpful to us. 
Because I think the majority of us can relate to him, right? His complaints are our complaints in the middle of suffering, and sometimes we blame God. We can relate to this guy. Maybe that's what makes the book of Job so fascinating for us, the struggle between belief and really not believing. And that's what true faith looks like. There is the struggle. There is the tension there. There are the doubts, and there are the moments of victorious faith. That's the real deal. There's a battle. There's a war. It's being waged. That's us, and that's Job. And I think we see and read what he's written, and we say, hey, that's me. And that can be very helpful to us, but what is more helpful? Not just relating to him. What is more helpful is knowing that the Redeemer he pointed to is also our Redeemer. Simple fact is, if God brought Job through hell on earth and vindicated him, he will surely do this for all his covenant people. Amen? He will bring you through it. He will bring you through it. He may not even vindicate you in this life against your adversaries. He may choose not to do that for your own good, but He will in the end. He will at the resurrection. He will. It is His promise to His people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we can tell it has power. We're feeling that power now. We thank you that that we have a book in the Bible called Job, not just so much as that you memorialized him there, but that you included it, put it in there, you saw fit to do that. For a zillion reasons, one thing that I love and admire is that I can relate to it, and I love how in these moments of desperation that Job points to you, and that's precisely the response of true Christians. May we do that. But Father, we thank you that you are our Redeemer, that you will one day rewrite all wrongs, that you will bring justice for us. You will one day we will meet you face to face, see you with our own eyes. What a blessedness that is to have you as our Redeemer. We long for that. It makes our hearts leap within us. We're waiting for that day. We anticipate that. Continue to be with us, God, as we live our lives for you and Lord, we pray that you protect us against the adversary who is constantly disguising himself and twisting your word and and he fools us so easily. Lord, make us aware of him. Give us a level of spiritual discernment and warfare to do battle with him, not to succumb to his tricks and connivory. Lord, may we be an accountable people, not only to you, but to one another. Give us the boldness to to share our lives with one another and make us trustworthy companions who can be trusted with this information and these things. Guard us against gossip and against being busybodies and these sorts of things, Lord. We have a perfect security in Christ. We don't need to draw it from experiences or anything else. But ultimately, we need to know that you are our vindicator. 
We thank you for that. May you receive all the praise and glory for this message and for how it's impacted us, for how we live our lives. And may we sing this next song to you with uh, much love in our hearts for you. And we pray in Jesus' name.